You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorah at gmail.com, and of course, I will answer as many as I can. <clears throat> the weather is cold. You wake up early in the morning. It's very cold. The afternoons are not bad, but we're in February. We're in Michigan. And we, well, some of us do like the cold weather. You bundle up, fresh, crisp, brisk. It's beautiful air, beautiful to breathe. I can still convince some children in my class to run around outside in the snow, go sledding. You know, you got to live outside. And then you'll come to enjoy all that warm, amazing weather. And the count, but the calendar is changing, and the Torah portions are changing, and we're getting ready for Purim pretty soon. Um, Purim's actually in two weeks from tomorrow, so lots of fun with that. We'll get into that. Um, it, we're not going to get into it, but it happens to be the Jewish calendar is just quite fascinating. What happens in synagogue over the next couple weeks? It, it's something that happens very rare. Um, happens to be this Sabbath, there's three Torah scrolls taken out, which for the most part to happen during this season is very rare. A couple other interesting things happen, but we're going to focus right now on the Torah portion, some important topics I think we'll enjoy. And again, over the next couple weeks, we'll start getting ready for Purim. That will be fun as always. Um... So one of the more famous um, verses that are talked about um, is in this week's Torah portion, talks about an eye for an eye. What does that mean? Literally, which we're going to talk about slowly. The Torah talks about damages, the concept that if I damage you, I have to pay. If, if, uh, if I damage you myself, I damage you, I have to pay. If my animal damages, I have to pay. If my... Um, fire goes out of control, I have to pay. If I leave things in the street, I have to pay. This concept, a very important concept, that when I damage, I have to pay. The problem is that when it talks about if I do bodily harm to you, it, it has all these a wound for a wound, a burn for a burn, and of course an eye for an eye. And we've all heard Hammurabi's code. You know, uh, hand, you know th- he took it literal. Right? An eye for an eye, you knock out my eye, the court will knock out your eye, because that seems to be justice. Again, but that's the literal translation. However, the Talmud says very clearly that no one in their right mind thinks an eye for an eye means an actual physical eye. It means you have to pay the value. You knock out a person's eye, you have to pay for his eye. And there's reasons and and we're not going to get into that, but all the details, why all these different um, cases are chosen, why that's important. But again, we're going to 
We're going to leave that off on the side for now. But I want to really focus on this idea of an eye for an eye. And the Talmud goes ahead and says that an eye for an eye really means money. How we figure out what that value is, um, for the most part, uh, we're going to treat the person if he would be a slave. And on the open market, what's the difference in value a slave with one eye, a slave with two eyes, or anything else that was damaged? That's only the damage part. There's other parts. There's, there's doctor bills, and there's loss of work, and there's pain, and there's embarrassment. So there's other calculations also, um, but not like nowadays where I can sue you and ask you for $50 million. Um, the courts were the ones that did the evaluation, and as well as it was proven or understood that you had to pay, then it was the, the court's responsibility to come up with what would be considered fair payment. The um, interesting in the Talmud, the Talmud discusses this, and there's a page and a half, really two and a half pages, of discussion of how do you know that an eye for an eye means money. And there's a lot of proofs, and maybe we'll talk about one of them later. Um, but what I really want to point out is two things. First of all, um, how the rabbis know that it means money. How do they know? That's one thing we have to discuss. And after we want to accept how the rabbis knew, um, does this bother anyone? Does it bother you that very clear, straight out, I mean, it's not like it's, a, it's an ambiguous verse. It's a very clear verse. If you knock out somebody's eye, it's an eye for an eye. Very clear. So what gave the rabbis the right to go ahead and say, yeah, it says eye for an eye, but really it means money. Maybe it doesn't mean money. Torah says eye for an eye. Maybe it means really money. I mean, I'm sorry, maybe it really means eye. Why do we go away from the actual physical, literal translation of the verse to go ahead and say it means money? So for the first part, all those proofs, because they, they ask a different question. The rabbis and, and, and that Talmud discussion is taking place, oh, let's say 1,500 years ago, 1,600 years ago. Right? That's when the discussion is taking place. So what happened for thousands of years before that? The obvious answer is we knew, and this happens throughout the Talmud. They knew, Moses comes down, brings down the Torah, tells them the rules and regulations, and explains what everything means, but nothing is written down. The oral law was oral. It was, it, was, uh, it was teacher to student. You had to remember it. You didn't keep notes. Nothing was written. Everybody knew all along what an eye for an eye meant. That was never a question. One of the things that Talmud spends a lot of time doing is even though we know because it's been passed down, again, from teacher to student, we know that an eye for an eye always meant money. But as a, if I'm sitting here studying the Torah, can I figure it out from the verse? Is there ways to figure it out? But really, really, they always knew. So when we say what gave the rabbis the right, no one should ever take it to believe that the rabbis on their own decided, you know, I don't really like how this verse goes, right? Because then you, your first problem is, what have we been doing for the last 500 years? What have we been doing for the last 1,000 years? What have we been doing for the last 2,000 years? Like, what happened that uh, 
that you, for some reason, think the rabbi took it in his own hands to just change the rules and change the meanings of the verse. So it must be that we always knew what everything meant. But we didn't always know how you could see it in the verse. As Moses didn't always explain how everything was understood, where you knew everything from, where you got that from. That's something that was left open for interpretation. I'm telling you, Ivan I means money. How do you know? Go figure it out. And that is something that the rabbi spent a lot of time working on. How could you figure out? Sometimes Moses did actually say how you would know. Sometimes he gave you the hints. He told you certain words um, are connected. And sometimes he left it all open for, not open for interpretation, because the law was always clear. What was left open was how can you figure it out? However, with this being said, um, there were factions over history. The Karaites is one of the more famous ones. The Tzedukim was another group where they had their own issues with the rabbis. We're not going to get into that part of history. They had their own personal issues that they didn't like the rabbis. So they came along and said, we don't like what you rabbis say. We're going to make the Torah literal. Now, by the way, even if they made the Torah literal, you still needed to have explanations. There's a lot of stuff in the Torah where there's no explanation there. For example, you have to slaughter an animal. Okay, where, what, how? Doesn't say. Keep the Sabbath. There's only a handful of laws the Torah actually says what it means to not work on Sabbath. It doesn't really define what work means. Right? And I, certainly nowadays, uh, you know, modern technology, it's work driving a car. It's, uh, it's work turning on a, on a light. It's work talking on my telephone. It's work booting up my computer. That, that's work? What's work? Is it work moving furniture around my house because I'm sweating? And that actually doesn't qualify as work. So no matter what you're going to do, you're going to need to have uh, commentaries. So the Karaites themselves have their own way of defining what the literal meaning of the verse was. So all they did was they said, we're scraping all the Talmud. We're going to start from scratch. But now you're starting from scratch without uh, any of the tradition that was going on for 1,500 years. 2,500 years would be more correct. So that's for sure true. So it happens to me, it's interesting. This specific case um, was brought up between Sadiago and the Gaonim. That was a period of time, I believe, uh, the... 700s, 800s, 900s, somewhere in that range, for sure the 900s. So if Sadiqon had debates, whether they were written or, or oral with the Karaites, how to deal with verses. And this was one of the famous verses that they had it out with. In other words, an eye for an eye. They wanted it to be literal. So he said, it was interesting, the answer he gave them is not one of the answers that the Talmud accepts as a final version. But it worked when he dealt with them. Um, He said that, uh, let's say, a blind man will knock out somebody's eye. Let's say he did it on purpose, so you shouldn't think it's by accident. He went ahead and he was able to go ahead on purpose and knock out somebody's eye. So he has no eye to knock out. In a similar case they have um, in the Talmud, what if a person has one eye and he knocks out the eye of a guy with two eyes? So now if you're going to take out his one eye, well, his one eye is all he's got. 
Is that fair? Is that equal? It doesn't make sense. So therefore, obviously, there are going to be situations where you're going to have to pay. Well, once you're telling me that there's uh, situations where you're going to have to pay, clearly this verse is not literal. Once it's not literal, then we can understand it always means payment. Um, it, it, it's interesting, Maimonides himself, in his, uh, it's called Mary Nebuchim, that was his philosophical um, treatise, if you like to call it that, he actually says the verse an eye for an eye is literal, which is fascinating because in his law book, he says, of course, it's not literal. So they, of course, ask, what did Maimonides mean in his philosophy book where he says, where he says that it's literal? So they explain that it should be literal. It was really, really, you know, if God is taking care of everything, so you knock at a person's eye, you deserve to lose an eye. The problem is we don't have the ability to decide if that's equal or not equal. Now, as far as God's concerned, God will give a even measure-for-measure measure punishment. So it should be an eye for an eye. Just for us, practically, it doesn't work. So if God wants to do the punishment, that's God's problem. And if it works out an eye for an eye, God can go right ahead. But for us in our courts, that just doesn't work so well. So it is interesting. So, so let's, if we would wrap this up and explain what I've been telling you, the bottom line is, Everything is coming from tradition. We have an oral law. The oral law is the tradition going all the way back to Moses. Now, as Moses came down with the written law, with the written Torah, he came down with Ten Commandments, and again, over the next um, 38-plus years, um, the entire written Torah, the five books of Moses, that was written down. And Moses gave us all the explanations. So we had an oral tradition from Moses how to understand the law in all these verses. That's what was going on. But at the end of the day, it comes down to trust. At the end of the day, it comes down to trust, that you need to trust. And not everybody has the oral tradition. The rabbi sitting and studying all day long have that oral tradition. Obviously, the best of the best were the ones that knew everything, because most of us can't, uh, can't hold on to all of it. Our brains are not so sharp. We, don't, we can't hold everything in our Brains. I had rabbis made fun, you know, because they're superstar brains, and they, you know, sort of jab us, talking about that our brains uh, can't handle everything, which is true, right? I mean, that's true. So let me give you an example of trust, how the rabbis explain this concept. And that is um, the famous Hillel. So Hillel could, somebody could come in, and there's all kinds of stories people wanted to convert but they had crazy um, um, strings attached. So one of them came in and said to Hillel, so again, Hillel lives uh, towards the end of the Second Temple, right? So you're talking 2,200 years ago, somewhere in that range. So he comes to the great Hillel, the prince, the leader, and he says, I want you to convert me. But on the condition that I only accept the written law. I don't want to do the oral law. You rabbis, who knows what rules and regulations you're going to add and change and and tweak because you feel like it. The written law, I understand that's from God, but I got no proof. How do I know to trust you that everything you tell me is the oral law coming down from Moses? Maybe you guys added your own stuff. 
So really, really, um, Hillel should have thrown him out on his head. You're coming to me. You want me to convert you. You want to say you accept all of God's laws, but you're not trusting the rabbi who's converting you. Like, like what gives? Like, either you do trust me or you don't trust me. That's, you would imagine, is what Hillel could have said, perhaps should have said, but he didn't. Hillel says, no problem. I'll teach everything. But uh, you don't even speak Hebrew. So tomorrow you come in, we will start to teach you the letters of the Aleph Bays. After I teach you the letters, you'll be able to read the Torah, and you'll be able to see and understand and translate everything literal, and you'll be set. Okay, he says, great, no problem. Comes in, and uh, for those who want to know what some of these things look like, go to some of our older uh, episodes. We used to hang up a poster with different letters of the different Hebrew letters. We talk about the letters. So Hill said, here's the first letter. This is an Aleph. Okay, great. He drew it and he worked on it. He's Aleph. And the next letter, this is a Bayes. And he, okay, and he saw how this letter was shaped and he, he worked, okay, Bayes. And the next letter was Gimel and the next letter was Dalit. Beautiful. Okay, come back tomorrow and we'll work on it again. I've got all day long to teach you. We'll do it tomorrow. Guy comes back the next day and he'll takes the first letter and says, this letter, we taught you four letters yesterday. Okay, I'm going to go over them again. The first letter um, is a Dalit. And the guy's thinking, no, no, he told me it was an Aleph yesterday. And the next letter, that's a, that's a Gimel. And the guy's thinking, yes, he told me that's a Bayes. And she was in the third letter and he says, uh, this is a Bayes. And the guy said, but it was a Gimel yesterday. And the next letter he calls an Aleph. So he says, hell, I don't understand you. You spent all your time yesterday. You, you told me that an aleph is an aleph. Now you're telling me an aleph is a dollar. Make up your mind. Sahil says, look, you don't even know how to read the alphabet. You don't even know what's an aleph and what's a base. You don't know a translation of a word. So you trust me for the translation of the word. You don't trust me that there's written and there's oral law. If you're going to trust me, you got to trust me all the way through. If you're not going to trust me, then you can't trust me at all. So the guy agreed, and he accepted the, the oral law. Fine, that's just to give you an idea of trust, which, of course, reminds me of a joke. So there's a, we're talking about trust, okay? So there's a guy, um, and he's, he's booking a ticket for his 85-year-old mother. That um, He's booking her a flight from Florida to California to come visit, and he calls the airlines, and he reviews all her special needs, and the lady on the other end says, no problem, we will have a wheelchair for her, and, and she'll get on early, and, and uh, we'll settle her in, and, and when the flight is over, we let everybody off, and then we bring on a wheelchair, and we take her off, and we'll bring her up to the gate, we'll take care of her, no problem, and yeah, okay, please, it's important, she really is not very mobile, she, she can't get around well, her eyesight is very poor, um, but if you'll take care of her, she'll feel comfortable, and I'll pick her up at the airport, and everybody will be fine. So the lady says, yeah, no problem. And, and you know, at the end of the conversation, the guy is really, really appreciative how they're taking care of his grandmother. It's just so beautiful. They're taking care of her and all the things she needs, and they're understanding her. And he says, you know, I, I do really appreciate um, everything you're doing for my grandmother. It's very appreciated that you're taking the time and the concern. Okay, so, you know, like the end of every phone call. So the, the airline person says, okay, 
Um, have we taken care of everything you need? And he says, yes, you've been so helpful, and hopefully this is being recorded, and uh, whoever your boss is will hear how nice you were. Yes, yes, okay, so everything good, everything is fine. And uh, would your grandmother like a rental car um, with her flight? Hello, right? Hello, right? You're paying attention? Right? It's part of trust, right? In other words, are you paying attention to me when I'm talking to you? Right? Are you trusting Everything that I have to say, you get it. So uh, trust is where it's all about. On a similar vein in this week's Torah portion, um, we have a very interesting law, and that is we do not cook milk and meat together. Now, by the way, meat really means um, animal meat, cows, um, goats, sheep, the rabbis decreed after my whole business about telling you about what the rabbis say in the oral law, but they actually decreed chicken. But that's another discussion. I don't want to go over there. But the verse, the verse that says you can't cook meat and milk is a fascinating verse. It says you will not cook the kid. It's a goat it's talking about. The kid, not a child kid, right? Um, I know teachers don't like when people say kids because kids are goats. But in any case, don't cook the kid in his mother's milk. So, good. It, it, the Torah could have said meat in general, and I would have gotten the ruling. For some reason, the Torah goes ahead and says, don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. Why was that the, the Torah's example? Like, why use that language? And again... Even though we've discussed we can't be completely literal because we have an oral tradition that when the Torah said don't cook a kid, a young goat, in its mother's milk, it didn't only mean goat meat. It meant cow meat. It meant sheep meat. right? So don't take it so literal because we're telling you that there's an oral tradition not to take it literal at the same time. Why? <clears throat> Why did the Torah go ahead and use such a language? So very fascinating. There's a commentator. He was actually a grandchild of the famous Rashi. And he says, in those days, it was a very interesting, I don't want to call it a custom, but this seems to be what people did. And that was that goats, it seems, give birth to two kids at a time. It seems that's very normal. Also, by the way, goat milk in those days was, even though for us cow milk is, I can't say everybody, but most of us that are drinking milk are drinking cow's milk. We are, for the most part, not drinking goat's milk. But in those days, goat's milk was much more common for people to drink. Perhaps it was easier to raise the goats. They obviously weren't, you know, sending it out to the grocery store. So um, so if it, it was not only was it common to cook to 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 have goat's milk, but when they would have two goats that were born, for whatever strange reason, they would take one of those goats and they would cook it specifically in the mother's milk. That's something that they did, which it, it just seems to be cruel. It seems to be just not nice. And, and the Torah wants to give you an example of something that is cruel to tell you this is not how you're supposed to act. So we're going to take this literal verse, which the oral tradition tells us don't take it literal. It means all meat. 
at the same time, when I'm teaching you, don't use, uh, don't, you know, don't take it literal, but it means you can't cook milk in any kind of meat. At the same time, I want to teach you a lesson, Torah says. And that lesson is you can't do things that are cruel. You, you have to become part of what the Torah wants is through a lot of these rules and regulations is you can't be a cruel person. Things that were always done that made a person cruel is just something that's not acceptable. And again, another example in this week's Torah portion happens to be with interest. Torah says you can't charge interest. When it comes to money, I can do business with you. I can use my money to do business. But what I can't do is lend you money on interest because the Torah wants to teach you to be kind, to be a nice person, be a good neighbor, be a good friend, be, be good to your brother, be good to everybody, be kind to everybody. And the Torah is going to give us a lot of examples how I can learn to be that good, kind person. But here comes my music. So as always, I hope you enjoyed it short and sweet. Thank you, of course, to all of our wonderful sponsors and listeners. You know, I can't do it without you. Thank you to our production team. We have David, Kelsey, and Alan in the back, I believe. I hope I have less than food for thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NM Streamcast. And until next time, don't forget to think about it. Every room inside is filled.